0: It's Wednesday, August 4th. From the Recount and iHeartRadio, this is the News Items Podcast, bringing you news and analysis based on my newsletter, News Items. I'm John Ellis. First, we have some sad news. My co-host, Rebecca Darst, has decided to move on and devote all of her energies to her work at investableuniverse.com. She made this podcast better. I'll miss her. The team that produces the podcast will miss her and hopefully she'll come back every so often for cameo appearances. As for today, we have a conversation with Andrew Sullivan. He is unquestionably one of America's most prominent public intellectuals, and he has been just that for more than 25 years. Andrew became the editor of The New Republic at the ripe old age of 26, and from that perch he published hugely influential pieces on everything from marriage equality, to Hillary Care, race, and IQ. In 2000, Andrew started one of the first blogs that really took off. It was called The Daily Dish. It was hugely successful, and after stints at publications like The Atlantic, The Daily Beast, and New York Magazine, Andrew has now moved his work to Substack. The Weekly Dish is now posted every Friday. You can find it at andrewsullivan.substack.com. He also has a weekly podcast, which is great, Andrew, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us.
1: There are a few people I'd be more prepared to talk to, John. Thank you so much for having me. I'm most grateful.
0: So we're here in part to talk about your new book, a collection of essays called Out on a Limb, writings from 1989 to 2021. I was up in Maine over the weekend and people said, The first question you have to ask him is, how did he get to be the editor of The New Republic at the age of 30? So I want to uh, ask that question on behalf of a number of our listeners.
1: Beats me. I wasn't the person who made that decision. Uh, It was actually at 26, not 30. 26, wow. 26, I was asked to be acting editor of The New Republic. And that summer, I turned 27. And then in the fall, was asked to be editor. And you'd have to ask Marty Peretz, really, who asked me. It really, um, to be honest with you, it blindsided me at the time. I really didn't think it was going to happen at all. And suddenly it did. I think the answer is that the politics of the New Republic were always fraught. There was a a big right-left battle. And Marty, the owner, was more conservative than most of the people on staff. And I was a very young and more conservative kind of writer and thinker. And I was there as an intern, had done pretty well, had just graduated with a PhD from Harvard, was back there, and Marty was kind of on, not very happy with the way the magazine was going and decided to make this radical move. And I was foolish enough to say yes, I think. I probably should have more wisely said, I'm not ready for this. I've only been in the United States a few years I'm a conservative, you're a liberal magazine, et cetera, et cetera. At the same time, I loved the magazine, was incredibly honored to edit it, had done a lot of editing in it. I mean, I'd, I'd done every job at the magazine before I had the top one. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like I was thrown in, out, in, in nothing. But that's how it happened. I think it was just a way for Marty to get the magazine tilting more rightward and eclectic than it was. He was getting more conventionally liberal, I think, when I came along.
0: What were the key moments or pieces that you published during your tenure there?
1: I mean, I don't want to toot my own horn, but I think the way in which we campaigned on marriage equality in the military was kind of an important thing. I think the pieces we ran on Bosnia and intervention and genocide were very important. We ran some really brilliant pieces by Camille Paglia, for example, which really introduced her to the mainstream in a way that hadn't been done before. And the things that I was most known for was really putting rather dangerous and difficult ideas into circulation. So, for example, we had a piece that really took apart Hillary Clinton's healthcare plan and helped kill it, we're told. I mean, I don't think any magazine has that power, but we definitely changed the debate on that. We changed the debate also by airing a symposium on the bell curve, which was hugely controversial and still is, but I felt kind of an interesting topic to be aired out in a magazine of opinion and we did it it was actually the best selling issue of the magazine in its history so though and i think we covered more cultural social things race more than we had done before and we did we did really well
0: the charles murray publication symposium i guess on the bell curve Take us through that because that always struck me as Oof. sort of the original violation of the code of woke, if you will.
1: <laughs> yes. It was a a violation against the cathedral, really. Well I Charles came to me and said, I'm writing this book and this is what's in it. And I I was I we'd published Charles many times before. He was actually incredibly influential in the nineties and eighties in reforming social policy in the United States, especially on welfare. So I read the book and the racial stuff is really a small part of it, but I was I was kind of taken aback, to be honest with you, with the data, which shows that IQ that is measured by these tests actually is an incredibly important data point to understand and to see a little better our social economic challenges in as much as we were even then, certainly then, beginning to divide as a country into those above a certain cognitive level and those below it in terms of the college-educated, the non-college-educated. And that book was really all about how are we going to tackle this growing divide, which I think you know, 30 years later is clearly a real problem. Anyway, I proposed that we didn't dodge the race issue because otherwise it would have looked weird to run a piece in the book that was kind of avoiding it. So we ran it Mm -hmm. headfirst. There was a huge outcry from the staff and my colleagues so I brought Charles in to have a thoroughgoing debate about it that didn't go very well then I, and these are my flawed memories so forgive me if I get details wrong and so then the idea was that we'll do this as part of a general symposium anybody on staff who feels they want to dissent from this should have an opportunity to do so mm-hmm. and i would publish them at any length So we ran 13 critiques and the piece. And it was, uh, as I said, the best-selling issue in the magazine's entire history. But basically put a mark on my head for the rest of my career uh, (laughs) as someone who believed in things that even Marian Hernstein didn't believe in. And when, in fact, what I was really trying to do was to insist upon the importance of open and free debate as long as it is conducted in good faith and has serious evidence to back it up. And I think Charles and Dick Kernstein more than passed that test. And so let's have it out. That's my view. Let's have it out. If there's a problem here, let's recognize it. If it's not good, let us expose it. If it's got some brilliant points, let's point them out. Let's also point out the flaws. I'm just a big believer in letting it all hang out in a democracy. I just think that's better than hedging, trying to control the discourse, gatekeeping, and all the rest of it. And I think that was a, a position at the New Republic which really wasn't what other people really believed in. They believed a magazine should be helping to guide a public discussion as opposed to helping to expose and widen it.
0: You left the New Republic and shortly thereafter became what I think of as the original blogger, beginning, I guess, in 2000 obviously, you had worked in sort of the traditional magazine framework. Tell us about what that was like when you started blogging. There you are all by yourself, no net. Give us a take on that.
1: It was fantastic, is is the answer. It was anybody who's had experience, actually, in mainstream journalism and had gone through that process could not have felt anything but liberated because... No publisher, I had no Marty to worry about. <laughs> no <laughs> no staff. I had no staff to worry that I was upsetting them. And the other immediate thing was that people could read you instantly. There was no delay between writing and publishing and distribution and then reading. So everything sped up, which also meant that immediately also you were more accessible to readers. So they came back at me right away. And so from the very beginning, The blog was a discourse more than a monologue. So immediately the readers insisted on being a part of the conversation. And I remember one of the first two, I remember this very distinctly, emails I got. One was from New Zealand and one was from North Dakota. And they came in within minutes of each other. And that was just a revelation too, you know? I mean, and then as I went along, I just, I kind of improvised. I used some of the old stuff we had from the old media, diaries, notes, quotes, Little things that the British do in their magazines and newspapers. My goal was to kind of replicate a discourse that was like the New Republic uh, when I was there and The Spectator in London, which I still thinks a terrific read. And just let it evolve. And eventually it kind of wanted me to do it more and more. The more I did, the more people subscribed, the more people came to the site until I added interns and then I took it from various media companies to sort of like rent it out really after a while and that's how i i made a living in the 2000s until eventually of course we decided to go independent entirely and did it for a year at which point i as i also write in the book in a peace court i used to be a human being <laughs> at which point i just felt my my, my my brain cells had completely collapsed from the attempt to coordinate and process zillions amounts of information, constantly, day by day, year by year, week by week. I mean, I was writing, we were doing together, we had a little team, about 40 separate posts a day. And that's just simply a pace we couldn't continue, and eventually my doctor told me, stop. And you finally (laughs) did. I finally did, and then, of course, (laughs) I take a whole year off, I go on a retreat, I kind of really detoxify from the web. Right. And at that point, Twitter had arrived, the entire cacophony of online discourse had taken over and I went back to long form writing a weekly eventually with for Adam Moss at New York magazine until he left and then it became increasingly hard to do my work freely there and eventually they made the move to get rid of me rather than my gracefully leaving. How did you get to Substack? The guys at Substack had been in touch with me years before and have been ever since they started it wanted me on board. And I was just like, well, I'd love to. It sounds, it sounds great what you're doing, but I'm done with blogging. I can't do it anymore. <laughs> right. So good luck to you guys. If I can help you, I will. But then as I realized, I can't write what I really believe without constraint in the mainstream media anymore. So I actually started talking to them earlier that year. So I created this possible escape hatch, which is why I was able to jump immediately from New York to Substack. And that has been a really remarkable, a remarkable change. And I think a really structurally, a really helpful change in, in the media in ways that really begun to puncture some of the unanimity and uniformity of views you now
0: get in the mainstream media. All right, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the podcast. Tell us just a little bit about Andrew Sullivan, Inc you obviously produce the weekly dish and you have the podcast what's the staff
1: my colleague chris Bodena is his name and he was at the dish with me for i think maybe seven years and we're very good friends and he is definitely a kindred spirit he's an individualist a, a rebel a troublemaker and a wonderfully brilliant editor so One of the things we always did, and we still do, is dissents. So people write in. Mm -hmm. Instead of having comments, which tend to be kind of awful, or Twitter, which is dreadful, we get smart people to write in some very serious critiques. And he is in charge of creating that. So I have to respond every week. So he creates a diversity of opinion within the blog itself. And we we have an accountant and a lawyer and people to help us. But
0: it's remarkable what two people can do. It is. Tell us your thoughts on the rise of Trump. You've written a lot about it.
1: Well, I think that there are some tendencies for conservatives, which can be bad. <laughs> and one of them is the notion that we have we know it all. We've got it nailed. We control the world. There's a truth, a certainty to everything. And we just impose that. And that, to some extent, comes from some of the religious underpinnings of some elements on the right. But also, and it's true also on the left, by the way this obsession with certainty so that lack of skepticism lack of humility that emerged and then once you get into that kind of certainty if you're not careful if the world doesn't quite match up to that certain view you develop paranoia you develop ideas that the world is controlled by elites who don't like you 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 start to believe things because they feel good to you as opposed to Are they true or not? You lose the capacity to realize you don't know everything and that you will be wrong, and that's okay because you're human. And so I think there were elements of that that occurred. But I also think, going back to what I was saying about Charles Murray, I do think that what people didn't realize was that capitalism was essentially a very successful enterprise. It created huge amounts of wealth, but the way it did and the way in which it combined with increasing rewards to the cognition of the able in the late 20th, early 21st century, meant that we created, and all across the West, these two groups of the college-educated, internationalist, global-oriented, hyper-woke, multicultural people. And then we had regular folks who were not educated in the colleges, who did work that was actually being sent abroad by these very elites as they were trying to do it, who culturally felt very alienated and left behind and you create a situation like that, it's ripe for a demagogue to exploit it. And that's what he did. I mean, it's almost a classic demagogic strategy. You can go back to Plato and see the idea of a tyrant who says, I'm a member of the ruling class, but unlike them, I know they're screwing you over and I support you instead. Right. <laughs> a Brilliant move. But, of course, motivated entirely by vanity and narcissism and delusion on his part. And I'm happy to say I did see his threat very early. I thought he was going to win in 2016 and said so to a great deal of derision from my friends. Partly also a recognition that Hillary Clinton is probably one of the worst politicians in American history. And the idea that she was going to beat this demagogue was absolutely crazy. I mean, she did really well. And she did actually beat him in the popular vote, of course. But, yeah... I I just knew she couldn't win an election. I just knew that. And then I, I, you know, it's so complicated to understand what happened next. Things fed upon themselves. Tribalism began to set in. The left became more extreme. They created more reasons for paranoia among regular people. And I think a lot of people who were in the elites lost touch with, or worse, condescended to people that they grew up with, who were in their families. Right, Or they became so sequestered in a very upper-middle-class, hyper-educated world, they couldn't see reality from another viewpoint, and so missed it. And I was partly guilty of that, because for us, for those most of us who were succeeding in this society, what problems were there? And that was a terrible blind spot for many of us, and I think I saw more of it, a little bit more of it, could see the problems with it, because... My family, I mean, my family's in England, but basically no no one's been to college, but very smart and decent, and they were not liking what was going on. They were not liking what was happening in Britain in mass immigration. They weren't liking the sense of being excluded from their own government. They weren't liking the way in which the elites started talking about them. My brother said something to me a few years ago about London, and he said to me, well, it's not our capital city anymore, is it? And it, Hmm. it just haunted me. It haunted me, John. I mean, it's like... And when you went to London, you know, if you'd left in the 80s like I did, and went back in the 2010s, it was a different city. 40% of Londoners were not born in the United Kingdom. Right, It's just something unheard of in English. I mean, in America, New York, totally normal. I mean, that's regular. It's a big <laughs> <Right>. entrepot <laughs> right. for immigration destination. <laughs> right. This is a little island off the, end, off the edge of Europe. The weather's not so great. It's being simply... Uh, Swarmed by all these people, there were more people immigrated net gross, sorry, in twenty fifteen than immigrated from ten sixty six to nineteen sixty. <laughs> I mean, how do you do that to a country <laughs> and not expect there to be some kind of reaction? And I was for Remain, just as I was reluctantly for Hillary, because I really thought there were too many risks and unknowns involved. That part of my conservatism kicked in, right? But having seen since especially seeing how the elites responded to the populist victory, mm-hmm. which was not to understand it and to try and figure out maybe how to co-opt it or how to engage it, but merely to condescend and to ridicule and to demonize it made me think, well, these populists had a point, didn't they? They were crazy. They were not wrong. These people really do feel contempt for them. I heard it. I heard it myself everywhere. Yes. And so I became more pro-Brexit, to be honest, since it. And of course, I feel more in touch with and closer to what the Tories are doing in Britain than the way the Republicans have evolved in the United States. It's not as nutty at all. It's not as subversive. It's a way in which the Tory party has always effortlessly tried to co opt right wing movements as opposed to fight
0: them. Yeah. All right. We're going to take a break here to hear from our sponsors, and we'll be right back with Andrew Sullivan. A lot of my listeners are older and have been surprised, I guess, or befuddled, or whatever the right word is, by what we'll call the rise of the woke. And the question they ask me over and over again is, where did this come from? And I don't really have the answer to that, but I said that I would ask you and that you would probably have a good explanation. You know, ideas matter.
1: It comes from ideas. I did political philosophy at Harvard. That was my PhD. So I had to read all these motherfuckers. The expression of unreadable in the first place, but appealing in certain ways, because it's always appealing to understand and believe that the, the country you live in is absolutely a fraud and a farce. Every young person wants to believe that and wants to revolutionize everything. This is not So it has that appeal. Right. Its second appeal is that it runs with the grain of human nature in ways they, the people who advocate it don't really want to concede, which is that we like categorizing individuals on the basis of a group identity. Mm -hmm. We feel more comfortable. Oh, that person's black. I put him in that category. (laughs) That person's white. I put him in that category. What our civilization has attempted to do, it hasn't succeeded, but it has attempted in a way that no other civilization has attempted to do, is to disaggregate identity from the individual and to treat individuals as individuals, as citizens without an identity, first and foremost, and to conduct a... A constitutional system on the basis of reason by individuals and this is very hard it's counterintuitive it goes against the grain we are naturally more tribal and so wokeness which turns us back into tribes and denies our individuality is in fact always going to be a potent have potent appeal to people just as racism does anti-racism has the same, characteristics in as much as it requires you to constantly see people entirely in terms of their group it adds that you have to then see these groups as playing out in a world in which there is nothing but oppression or the oppressed that the reality about the world is really about power not about freedom not about actual diversity not about individualism not about doubt not about free association not about invention not about creation, but about power and oppression. So it's all zero-sum, whereas our system is non-zero-sum, and it appeals in that way. And then it was really indoctrinated to the elites. And when you're told that if you don't believe this, you're a bad person, and also if you don't, you're actually being a racist, and if you just say nothing, you're being a racist, the emotional blackmail has definitely worked. In institution after institution. And liberals who want to be good people, understandably, don't want to be racist, who does, just caved. They were so terrified of social ostracism and disapproval that they just kind of kept quiet. And if you keep quiet and these radical cliques take over, they will soon come at you. So I don't think it's that bit of a mystery. And I think also there's a sense in which this is kind of a natural endpoint of egalitarianism, that everything has to be the same, everything has to be equalized Mm -hmm. in a way that nature and society never really... A free society won't allow that. So it's also the classic liberal versus conservative idea that, in fact, we're going to fix the society so that no bad things happen and everybody is equal, as opposed to the conservative says, are you kidding? (laughs) (laughs) The, The only way you do that is by... Having a government so powerful and so brutal is going to come in and tell you what you can and cannot do, what you can and cannot say in ways that are inimical to a free society. And, you know, that I think is what's happened. And I watched the media especially collapse. They did it partly but also, there was a weird twist here that as the 2000s happened, as mainstream media revenues collapsed, their model was beginning to really go into the shitter. They decided they had to put out a lot of links, had a lot of traffic. So they hired a lot of kids right out of college who became disproportionately represented in the media Right. and who then brought their Ivy League authoritarianism, as it were, into the workplace and- Terrified the life out of all these liberal, old liberal editors and writers who also never want you to think they're behind the times right, right. or racist or somehow not hip or somehow not cool. And so you see people like David Remnick just completely capitulating to this kind of dreck. My hope is that it gets so boring, eventually people will move on. I mean, you, these magazines are very hard to read because you just know exactly <laughs> what they're going to say. It's the same hoary old cliches. And, you know, you, the New York Times op-ed page has little pictures now so you can see whether a person is really trans or black or anti- or whatever. And they all have the same, exactly the same view of the world. So who wants to read that after a while? I mean, no one
0: does. So boredom is our savior.
1: It may be, <laughs> as also my hope is that the younger generation, I mean, I hope that they haven't been so helicopter-parented that they never want to distrust authority or fight it. Eventually, someone will say, this is bullshit right. in college, right. <laughs> and that will become... Right. And they will be the revolutionaries. And some of this, the question is, how much damage can we prevent? And if this system, for example, removes all academic testing from most colleges then its potential for having the power to racially and socially engineer our society is quite dangerous. So I'm trying to do what I can to prevent the worst things happening
0: in the hope that eventually this will pass. I'm told you can graduate from Yale University with a degree in English literature without having read a word of Shakespeare.
1: I'm sure that's true.
0: All right, we've run out of our time, Andrew. Thank you so much for joining us. And listeners should know that you can find The Weekly Dish at andrewsullivan.substack.com. And I would urge you to get out and buy a copy of Out on a Limb, which is a selection of his writings from 1989 to 2021. It's a terrific body of work. And, uh, Andrew, thank you very much for doing the podcast today.
1: It's always lovely to talk to you, John. I also want to say that I love what you do every day, and the ability to see outside this country and to see the world in the broader, deeper shifts that you're seeing every day has been really helpful to me, and I'm grateful for that, and I, and I check in all the time. So thank you so very much.
0: Well, thank you. We'll have you back, of course, with that endorsement.
1: <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks a lot. All best. Take care. Lots of love. Thank you so much, John.
0: Thanks for tuning into the News Items Podcast. The podcast is based on my newsletter, which is available at newsitems.substack.com. News Items is produced by Christian Castro-Russell, Pierre bien Ali Rogers, and Megan Burney. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby, and our recording engineer was the great Tom Stewart. See you next time.